One of the towering intellects of our time is a man whose name you may not know, a gentleman by the name of Michael Walzer. Born to a Jewish family, educated at Harvard, at Cambridge University in England, and at Brandeis Universities, Walzer rose to become one of America's preeminent political theorists and public intellectuals. He's 88 today, or right now. For many, many years, Michael served as a professor at Princeton University's famous Institute for Advanced Study, a genius think tank that has known the company of people like Albert Einstein alongside of Walzer through the years. I was a seminary student at Princeton many years ago, and I used to occasionally drive by the Institute for Advanced Study, just hoping to soak in some of those brain waves and improve myself. Sadly, it didn't seem to work, as you probably can tell. I, I mentioned Michael Walzer today because he especially loved the biblical book of Exodus, the text from the Bible to which we're going to be returning once again uh, this morning and for the eighth time in this series. Walzer says that there are three major life lessons that we can all learn from the story of Exodus. First, wherever you live, it's probably Egypt. In a euphemistic sense, it's probably like the Egypt that the Israelites fled, ultimately. You probably live in a place where you will sometimes feel oppressed, weighed down, uh, burdened, undervalued, where you'll be asked to do too much with too few resources, where you'll run up against the limits of your body or your character, or perhaps you'll cry out to heaven, God, get me out of here. Set me free. Please set me free. At some point or another, all of us find ourselves in Egypt. Some of you may be there right now in one way or another. I can think of the stories I've heard this week of people who are languishing indeed in some form of Egypt. Secondly, says Walzer, there will be periods where you dare to believe that there is an answer to that prayer towards heaven, that there is someone who hears, that there is a better place, there is a promised land out there, a kingdom or a manner of living that is more beautiful for which, that more beautiful than the life that you have right now and for which your heart yearns and it is very important, suggests Walzer, that you start in that direction, that you take steps in the direction of that promised land, even if you can not see a way to get there, that you trust, I would say, the great way maker, the God who can make a way when there seems no way. And thirdly, observes Walzer, Exodus teaches us that the way to that land is often through the wilderness. There's no shortcut to the promised land. There's a journey to be taken. There's a price to be paid. There are things to be learned. And so whether your aim is to arrive one day at a fabulous character or at a great marriage or at a wonderful vocation or at a rich relationship with God or at a place of great influence in shaping a family's life 
whatever your ultimate goal is, getting to those beautiful places of promise almost always involve a difficult journey. Almost always require the 10,000 hours. Almost always require the ups and the downs, the falling and the failing. Along the way, you'll be treated with contempt by people. Along the way, you'll be tempted, you'll be tested, you'll be tried, you will be tempered in ways that are truly wild, as we've been saying in this series. I would add a fourth truth to the list that Walzer supplies for us, and I want to suggest that eventually on this journey, we must meet the mountain. We must meet the mountain, or more properly, the God of the mountain. The holy God reveals himself in this image of the mountain. When we left the story of Exodus last week, you may recall the children of Israel had made their way out of Egypt. They had crossed the Red Sea. They had wandered their way through the Arabian Desert, and they now found themselves at the foot of a famous place we call Mount Sinai. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Mount Sinai. That should be a whole lot of us. Even if it's just the hospital we've heard of, we've heard of Mount Sinai. This place was to prove to be not just a rest stop, a brief rest stop for the family road trip. God would actually keep the Israelites camped out in this location for 38 years. 38 years in this one location. It seems like he must have wanted them to learn something there. There must have been something about that mountain, that place, in his plan to shape the heart of the people of Israel before he could move them on towards the promised land. So what was it? What was it about the mountain that they needed to learn from? Well, we learned part of the point last week when Mark and Tracy in our various services described the amazing proposal that God makes to the children of Israel in this location. God says, and I quote, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, says God, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, this this little interchange that we read about in Scripture here has come to be called the Mosaic Covenant. And there are many covenants, many arrangements that God makes with people across time. There's the Adamic Covenant and the, and the Abrahamic Covenant and the Mosaic Covenant and, and the, eventually the Davidic Covenant and one day the New Covenant. But this is the Mosaic Covenant. And covenants are always designed to help us learn to live in relationship with God. Um, to understand what it means to live in a give-and-take relationship with God. God basically says here, look, the whole earth is mine. I hope you've noticed that. The earth is the Lord, the fullness thereof, says the psalmist. The whole earth is mine. There are bazillions of people I could be talking to right now, is implied in the text, I think. But I'm talking to you, Israel, because I want you. I want a special relationship with you. 
uh, my plan is to bless you beyond your imagining. My, my plan is to use you beyond your imagining. I plan to set you apart as a very special people. And he gives sort of two um, hints at the nature of that uh, specialness. He, he, he implies that they are going to have an outsized spiritual role in history. They're going to be a priestly people. And they're going to influence religion in human life. And secondly, they will be an enduring nation, a holy nation, a set-apart, a preserved nation like no other. Wow, I'd love to go on a sidebar here and just talk about what's happening in the Middle East today as it bears on these things. But this is the promise that God makes here. And then God talks about what's needed from Israel's side. This is what I want to do, but this is what I need from you. Obey me fully. Obey me fully, not in a smorgasbord way, not in a buffet belief system way. But follow me fully, and this is the call to discipleship in every age, to ask ourselves, are we following him fully? Are we living that way of obedience versus expedience? That is his call to us. Obey me fully. Keep the covenant. Keep your side of the bargain, he says. Do these things and you will be blessed. I loved last week how uh, our preachers uh, made the comparison of this conversation to a promposal. Uh, some of you remember that conversation? Or to a marriage proposal perhaps? And what I loved about that comparison is it suggests something of the, of the incredible intimacy and tenderness of the encounter that's going on here. You know, we read the words of Scripture sometimes and it feels like every bit of it is sort of, thus saith the Lord. No, this is a much more intimate encounter here at the mountain. God is in effect going down on one knee. He's offering Israel all the good that he has to give them, that he really wants to give them. He's saying in effect to, to the people of Israel, will you be mine? Will you be mine? And in saying that, he is opening himself up to the possibility of rejection. I remember the day that I asked Amy to marry me. Long story for another moment, but man, it almost didn't go too well. We almost sort of missed on that day. And, and, and I, I really entered the day thinking, I think she probably will say yes. But as I actually made the proposal, went down on that knee, I was trembling. I was trembling when I made the ask. When God makes the ask, Israel could say no. When God makes the ask, Israel could say, I'll get back to you in a week. Let me think about it. When God makes the ask, they could say, well, how about we negotiate the terms a little bit here, obey you fully? How about mostly? Or here's the prenup. If things start going bad, God, for us out in the land, maybe we pull back from this deal 
But God takes the risk, he makes the ask, just as in the coming of Jesus, probably supremely there, God stoops down, takes a knee, and says, will you follow me? Will you be mine? This illustrates, I think, one of the most important ideas in all of Scripture and and certainly the most important idea for you and me, and that is God is loving. This is really hard to remember at times when we're terribly sick with an illness, when someone we love has been taken from us, when life as we have planned it has collapsed. It's hard to believe that God is loving. But this is the message that we're being given in the book of Exodus and so many other places and supremely in Jesus. I know we tend to say it. We, oh, God is love. God is love. But we sometimes say that sort of like it's an abstract principle or as if we're describing God's color or as if this is sort of just a nice idea Uh, But God's outstretched hand toward anybody, including you and me, is an act of voluntary vulnerability. It's not something he has to do. It's something he keeps choosing to do. It's an act of risky kindness. And it's important for us to remember that even this very moment, His love for you is not just some fixed principle in the sky. It's an intimate choice he's making to keep reaching out in love to you and to me. That image of the cross. How much do I love you? This much, this much. We should never take love for granted. I hope I'm not preaching there, I'm confessing. I should never take love for granted. I shouldn't take for granted the loving gestures of the people in my life, my wife, my kids, my friends, my colleagues, you. I wanna soak in, I wanna feel gratitude moment by moment that I am loved. And maybe today is one of these days, and maybe one of the outcomes, one of the takeaways from this whole conversation and encounter we're having together is that you're going you're gonna to go to somebody that you know has reached out in love for you, and you're going to say thank you. Thank you for loving me. But to have God, <laughs> the God of the universe, love us, and keep reaching out for us. Wow, wow. Maybe that, maybe that sunk in for the children of Israel there at the, at the foot of the mountain. God really loves us. Maybe they were just so blown away by that realization, his desire to bless them, that they were willing to surrender any impulse to negotiate further, to ask questions, to raise protests. Maybe they were a little bit like some of us when we stood at some altar someplace and said, I do, I promise. 
or like when we said, hey, let's have babies, let's have kids. Maybe we just went, maybe they just went all in, not understanding fully what this was going to mean. As none of us ever really fully understand when we make the choice to respond to love and its call. We never fully understand what that's going to require. But the Bible simply says that the people all responded together. We will do everything that the Lord has said. We're all in. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord, the Bible says. And then what follows this intimate, wonderful encounter, this mutual exchange of affection and commitment, what follows right on the heels of that is something that is nothing short, you know the word, of wild. It's wild what happens next. Instead of God suddenly throwing a big party, celebrating this connection, instead of God whisking Israel away on a fast honeymoon right into the promised land to celebrate what's just happened, instead God issues through Moses and does in these next hours something really remarkable. First, he issues a set of commands to the Israelites that involve purification. Listen to what the word says. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. And consecration was an act of washing in in the Old Testament times. It was a, a way of preparing yourself for a deep engagement with God. Consecrate them today, not just today, but tomorrow too. Have them wash their clothes. Have them consecrate their insides and then have them wash their clothes and have them abstain from sexual relations. In these next two days. And then God instructs Moses to institute some serious measures of protection. Purification and then protection. He says, put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not approach the mountain, don't get any closer to the mountain yet, or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. Warn the people so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them then perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. And then all of this preparation process is it accompanied by major pyrotechnics, Wizard of Oz kind of stuff. You know, you remember that encounter in the Great Hall? where there was just the fire and the thunder and the smoke and the trembling and the voice of the great Oz say, you, you miserable lion, you bag of bolts, tin man, you, remember those? That it's something like that, except God is not speaking so harshly. He's just showing who he is in these acts of power, in these symbolic, visionary 
revelations of himself. We read, on the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast and everyone in the camp trembled. And then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain and Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire and smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. What is this all about? Why this radical purification? Why these measures of protection? Why all these pyrotechnics? Why all this heavy stuff immediately on the heels of the tender proposal that God has just issued to Israel and gotten a yes from? I think, and I'd love to hear from you after the service today what you make of this, but but I think it's because God is trying to tell Israel and perhaps by extension, those of us listening in onto the story of Israel, he's trying to tell us something crucial about himself and the nature of this loving relationship he wants with us. I think God wants us to appreciate that while he is truly loving, he is also holy. Holy, holy. What do you think of when you hear the word holy? That word has fallen into disuse and misuse in our time. When it is used, it's often employed in a derogatory sense as in holy roller or holier than thou. For many people, the word holy uh, brings to mind an image of a pinched, diminished, sanctimonious state of being in the olden days we would think of the church lady from Saturday Night Live. This is really sad because the biblical concept of holiness actually carries a vaster, vastly grander and more beautiful and and inspiring meaning. Properly understood, holiness implies the absence of sin, the the abundance of good fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, generosity, faithfulness, self-control, humility, courage, justice, go on down the list of beautiful character. The absence of sin, the abundance of good fruit, an all-out dedication, a a consecration, a commitment to the purposes of God. And finally, awesome power. Awesome, life-changing, world-shaping power. This is something of what a full-orbed understanding of holiness is. And if you'd like to read more about it, I wrote a whole chapter on it in, uh, in the book that Greg Ogden and I did called Leadership Essentials. It's the first chapter of the book. Um, it's such a beautiful understanding, holiness. 
And we see that holiness most perfectly in Jesus. And that's what I write about in that book. And I encourage you, I wish we had time for that today, but I encourage you, if you're interested, to check that out. Maybe you can see, maybe you can see how the call to purification, to protection, and even these pyrotechnics found in Exodus chapter 19 are all efforts to help a primitive people, the nation of Israel at this point, to start to understand, to begin to, to, to take in the nature of God's greatness. Uh, and, and so that they wouldn't get confused that just because he was loving, that he was not also beyond, beyond them, transcendent, why do you need to clean yourself up, purification? Why do you need to do that? Because God and his nature are so pure, absent of sin, full of good fruit. Why should you avoid getting too close to the mountain? Because the brilliance of God's holy nature would and could incinerate a person if he didn't supply the grace to protect us from that. Why all of this smoke and fire and shaking earth? Because God is so transcendent and so powerful that we need to always be soberly aware of how wondrous is the one who loves us. So I can only imagine how disturbing all of this would have been to, to Israel. But truthfully, I think God was out to disturb them. I think God was out to shake them up, as I think God would like to shake us up sometimes. As author David Wells observes, a God with whom we are on easy terms, a God whose reality is little different from our own. And you hear it all the time. People talk about God. Who is he? Well, Jesus is my, my good friend. Uh, the man up, I talk to the man upstairs, to the big boss, as if God were just a taller version of you and me, a slightly taller version of you and me. David Wells says that a God who we are on easy terms with, a God whose reality is little different from our own, who is merely there to satisfy our needs, has no real authority to compel us and will soon bore us. And the issue of our time is actually not that people have forgotten the love of God. The issue of our time is they have forgot, but forgotten the holiness of God, the majesty of God. Until we understand God's holiness, we will have this tendency, I think, to settle for too little in our concept of God. We'll settle for too little in our treatment of people made in his image. We will settle for too little in our ambition for our own lives. These are the consequences of losing a sense of the Holy One and who he is. To illustrate this, um, author Paul David Tripp describes um, a journey he took to uh, the city of Dubai in the Middle East. And, and, and he, he found himself at the foot of, of, of a building called the Burj Khalifa. Do you know what the Burj Khalifa is? 
You've seen pictures of that. Maybe some of you have visited there. Um, the Burj Khalifa is the largest man-made structure on planet Earth. Uh, it is um, over a half mile high skyscraper. And um, this particular author describes going up in an elevator some 125 stories in the Burj Khalifa and looking out upon the city. And this is what he says. How small the rest of the buildings looked. How, how unimpressive, how, how unworthy of attention, let alone awe, was the entire landscape below me. And yet, he says, those, those small buildings were in fact skyscrapers who in any other city in the world would be objects that we would look at with a sense of awe. We would want to visit them. But, says Tripp, I had caught a glimpse of the greatest, which put what impressed me before into proper perspective. The Burj Khalifa today, the spires of medieval uh, cathedrals, the, the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, in ancient times are these pointers, the, they're these hints at the height of the holiness of God. That's, that's their major value. They increase our sense or capacity for awe, which we need if we're going to really be in relationship with God. As Paul Tripp concludes, if you allow yourself to gaze upon God's holiness, you feel incredibly small and sinful. But it is a good thing spiritually to have the assessments of your own grandeur decimated by divine glory. It reminds us of our desperate need for God's grace. And I would remind you again, the Reformation was born some, some legendary accounts of it. The moment that Martin Luther was crawling up the steps of the cathedral in absolute penitence, determined to show by, by his virtuous acts a worthiness that God could somehow accept, and he realized he could never climb high enough. And it would only be by grace that he would be saved. And he rolled over on his back on the steps and let out a great belly laugh. That there was, in effect, a grace greater than the gravity of life. And the renewal of the church began. So here's my guess. I think this is why God left Israel at the foot of that mountain for 38 years. I think he wanted its height and his holiness to do a work upon the heart of his people. So that when they finally entered that new land, they would have the right kind of heart to build a different kind of world. The New Testament scholar D.A. Carson points out that most of us 
don't casually drift toward holiness. We don't get to the end of our day and go, oh, I'm glad I just, I wasn't thinking about it, but I got a lot more holy today. No, says Carson, we need to be met by it. We need to be confronted by it. We need to sit with it a very long time. Carson writes, apart from grace-driven effort, people don't gravitate toward godliness. They don't naturally gravitate toward prayer or obedience to scripture or faith or delight in the Lord. No, we tend to drift instead toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it that faith. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking that we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. To fuse the earlier analogies that we've made today, until we meet the mountain of God, until we catch at least a glimpse of the height of his holiness, we may easily drift in our understanding and our practice of life, and then we may spend our time building chicken coops on foundations made for skyscrapers. You're made in his image. You're made to be a skyscraper of beauty and dignity and goodness, love and holiness. So my questions are how high do you want your character to grow? How high do you want your usefulness to God's purposes to go? And, and, and what sin or pattern of settling, what much smaller understanding and vision of God or yourself, of others, what smaller thing have you, what chicken coop have you accepted in your life? that the holy God would want to transform. And can you bring that before him today and say, Lord, reform me, renovate me. I want to close out our time together with a story that Max Lucado tells in his book, The Grip of Grace. It's the story of a guy who had been a closet slob most of his life. Uh, he just could not comprehend the logic of neatness, writes Lucado. Why make a, a bed if you're going to sleep in it again tonight? Why put the lid on the toothpaste tube if you're just going to take it off again in the morning? And then he got married. And Lucado says his wife was patient. She said she didn't mind his habits at all if he didn't mind sleeping on the couch. And since he did mind sleeping on the couch... He began to work at changing. He joked, in fact, that he enrolled in a 12-step program for slobs. He kidded that a physical therapist had helped him rediscover the muscles that are used for hanging up shirts and placing toilet paper on the holder. He said that his nose had been reintroduced to the blessed smell of pine saw, and he was a now a more elevated man. And by the time his in-laws arrived for a visit, he was a new creation, it would appear.
And then came the moment of truth when his wife went out of town for a week. At first, says Locato, he reverted to the old man. He figured he could be a slob for six days and clean quickly on the seventh day. And and then something strange happened. He found he could no longer relax when there were dirty dishes in the sink or towels flung around the bathroom or clothes on the floor or sheets piled up like a mountain on the bed. What happened? Simple, says Lucado. He had been exposed to a higher standard of living and loving and hit It had begun to alter him from the inside out. On a higher scale, this is what the love and holiness of God does. It sanctifies us. It makes us more holy and loving. That's what explains the changed character of the people who walked with Jesus. That's why you can tolerate me, though if you knew me at 18, you wouldn't much want to be around me. Before Jesus began to change me and my vision of life and my heart. That's why we keep coming here, you and me, to the foot of the mountain. Why we need to to sit here and soak in the one who meets us today in all of his glory. God is holy. We are not. But because he is also loving, he has grace and truth to help us with our condition and to make us more and more like him. And in fact, I read someplace recently that he he even has this top 10 list of things we could lean into to start living out our potential more fully. And it is that list to which we are going to return next week when the story of Exodus continues. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the powerful witness of your word and all that it tells us of you. Help that truth to settle in more deeply within us and by the power of your spirit, continue your reforming work within us. For we ask this in the name of Jesus, the Holy One. Amen.